Section 1 of The Bookman, March 1921, by Various. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Bookman, March 1921, by Various. Section 1. The Elder Critic and the Young Enthusiast by Haywood Braun It was a child in Hans Christian Andersen's fairy tale who finally told the truth by crying out, He hasn't got anything on, as the king marched through the streets clad only in the magic cloth woven and cut by the swindling tailor. You may remember that everybody else kept silent, because the tailor had given out that the cloth was visible to all except such as were unworthy of their position in life. The child knew nothing of this, and anyway he didn't have any position in life, so he piped up and cried, he hasn't got anything on. And though he was but a child, others took up the cry, and finally even the king was convinced and ran to get his bathrobe. The tailor, as we remember the story, was executed. In course of time, that child grew up, and married, and died, leaving heirs behind him, and they in turn were not barren, so that today vast numbers of his descendants are in the world. Nearly all of them are critics of one sort or another, but mostly young critics. Like their great ancestor, they are all frank and shrill, and either valiant or foolhardy as you choose to look at it. Certainly, they seldom hesitate to rush in. No, there is no doubt at all that they are just a wee bit hasty, these descendants of the child. It is rather useful that every now and then one of them should point a finger of scorn at some falsely great figure in the arts and cry out his nakedness at top voice. But sometimes they make mistakes. It has happened not infrequently that worthy and respectable artists and authors in great costs Close-fitting sack suits and heavy woolen underwear have been greeted by some member of the clan with the traditional cry, he hasn't got anything on. This may be embarrassing as well as unfair. Ever since the child scored his sensational critical success so many years ago, all his sons have been eager to do likewise. They have inherited an extraordinary suspicion regarding the raiment of all great men, even when they are forced to admit that some particular king is actually clad in substantial achievement of one sort or another, they are still apt to carp about the fit and cut of his clothing. Almost always they maintain that he borrowed his shoes from someone else and that he cannot fill them. In regard to humbler citizens, they are apt to carry charity to great lengths. In addition to the incident recorded by Anderson, they cherish another legend about the child. According to the tradition, he wrote a will just before he died in which he said, Thank heaven I leave not a single adjective to any of my descendants. I have spent them all. The clan is notoriously extravagant. They live for all the world like Bedouins of the Sahara without thought of the possibility of a rainy day. Their gaudiest years come early in life. Middle age and beyond is apt to be tragic. 
Almost nothing in the experience of mankind is quite so heartrending as the spectacle of one of these young critics, grown gray, coming face to face in his declining years with a masterpiece. At such times, he is apt to be seized with a tremor and stricken dumb. Undoubtedly, he is tormented with the memory of all the adjectives which he flung away in his youth. They are gone beyond recall. He fumbles in his purse and finds nothing except small change worn smooth. The best he can do is fling out a highly creditable piece of work and go on his way. Still, he has had fun for his adjectives for all that. There is a compensating glow in the heart of the young critic when he remembers the day an obscure author came to him asking bread, though rather expecting a stone, and he with a flourish reached down into the bread box and gave the poor man layer cake. After all, one of the young critics told me in justifying his mode of life, it may be just as tragic as you say to be caught late in life with a masterpiece in front of you and not a single adequate adjective left in your purse. Yes, I'll grant you that it's unfortunate, but there's still another contingency which I mean to avoid. Wouldn't it be a rotten cell to die with half your adjectives still unused? You know you can't take them with you to heaven. Of what possible use would they be up there? Even the bravest superlatives would seem pretty mean and petty in that land. I think of being blessed with milk and honey for the first time and try to express your gratitude and wonder with the best I ever tasted. No, sir. I'm going to be ready for the new eternal words by using up all the old ones before I die. Of course, it will be well before going any further to point out that, generally speaking, a young critic remains that way no matter what his age. In the field of music, for instance, nobody is younger than James Gibbons Hunker. After twenty or thirty years of musical criticism, a great many men have the entire field divided into so many cubbyholes. If a new piece of music appears which does not fit into any of these, it is promptly thrown away as worthless. There is much to be said for the value of traditions, though not by the writer of this particular article. He feels too keenly what seems to him the tyranny which tradition has held over the English theatre. Shakespeare almost ruined the stage for all the men who came after him by not only looming head and shoulders over everybody else, who had ever lived, but by being too high even for the succeeding generations to shoot at. He spoiled the game of speculating as to when and how the great English drama would be written by writing it, not once, but dozens of times. There followed centuries well down into our own day, when every playwright who came along was required to climb up and over Shakespeare before anybody was willing to speak enthusiastically about him. Of course nobody did, and for years there wasn't any enthusiasm about playwrights. It was all reserved for actors who played in Shakespearean revivals. No dead American playwright begins to be as well known as Edwin Booth. This is a sad state of affairs. Actors belonging in the theater only at the special invitation of playwrights, and here is one capturing the entire enthusiasm of one branch of American criticism for a quarter of a century. Not only did the tradition of Shakespeare terrify English and American dramatists for hundreds of years, but it ensured a cool reception to the great dramatists of other lands when they were introduced to us in translation. 
William Winter, the foremost American dramatic critic of his day, upbraided Mansfield for playing Cyrano, and the actor replied humbly enough that he knew it was a potboiler, but he was merely trying to get a little money together in order to do another Shakespearean revival. And of course, Ibsen and Shaw drove Winter into perfect tirades of fury. James Gibbons Hunker was one of the young critics who brought the attention of America to Ibsen and to Shaw. It is true that he did not have the effrontery to point at Shakespeare and shout, He hasn't got anything on! But he did the next best thing and pretended not to see him. Fortunately for the American novel, there is nobody with whom the younger generation can be clubbed into submission, and yet a few small gods and petty tyrants have been established. These have not been individuals so much as theories of life. Political and moral considerations have entered into American literary criticism to an amazing extent. Today, a number of novelists are judged not so much on the basis of their style, but rather more on their apparent attitudes towards Soviet Russia. Not in the same course of three years has the same book been praised by, quote, the Liberator and the New York Times. The strongest set feeling against which the younger novelists have to contend is American pride and satisfaction in rural life. This does not mean that any great number of Americans want to live in rural communities, but a great many do, and in order to flatter and compensate these, an enormous literary bulwark has been built up to protect the conception that the home life in American small towns is the most perfect in all the world. It was hard to persuade the small-town man of this, because he was living the life. But after all, what were his own petty misgivings against the voice of the Saturday Evening Post and the American Magazine? He was won over, although even today it may not be quite safe to offer him a job in New York or Chicago. The big cities were easy. Urban folk felt that rural and small-town life as pictured in the magazines was not just what they wanted for themselves, not right away at any rate, but that it was the sort of thing which one ought to like as an ideal. Most New Yorkers will tell you that they hope some day or other to save up enough money to buy a farm and settle down upon it. The fact that they do nothing of the sort is not relevant. Of course, there have been sporadic attacks from time to time against the assumption of the perfection of pastoral life in America, but the big push has begun only within the last year. It has been terrific in its concentration, and the writers who have led the attack are Sinclair Lewis with Main Street, Zona Gale with Miss Lulu Bet, Floyd Dell with Mooncalf, and Sherwood Anderson with Poor White. These have been the directors of action in the field. But back at headquarters is a man who has had more to do with seizing the offensive against Puritanism than any of them. Naturally, we mean H. L. Mencken. Most Americans who dislike Puritanism have been content to remain on the defensive, but not so with Mencken. When Prohibition was first advanced, he suggested no compromise, but called instead for more rum. His answer to the plea for a blue Sunday is an impassioned appeal for a purple one. In and out of season, he has been shouting, he hasn't got anything on, at every consciously respectable figure in American letters. Naturally, he has not played scrupulously fair, but he has been a fine fighter. Even though one agrees with few of his ideas about life or literature, 
he must applaud the effect he has had on American writers. He has brought controversy and bitterness into literature and made it exciting and worthwhile. Only out of the vigorous clash of opinion can the great American novel come, or even the pretty good American novel. William Allen White was praising Main Street the other day, and at length he remarked, Of course, I'm on the other side of the street myself, but that's just the reason why I like this book. It gives us fellows something to answer. End of section one.